Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Hey, thanks for calling in this morning. Hey, thanks for, thanks for inviting me to call. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, from from foggy, damp, sort of cold San Francisco, right? That's right. Yeah, jackets are required in the summertime, for sure. Jackets in the summertime, isn't that crazy? From here in Madison, that is a, that is not what is required usually, yeah. Yeah, well, just the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so um, why, don't you, why don't we start by having you introduce yourself um, to our listeners, because you'll do a better job than I do. Sure. Uh, so, hi guys. My name is Dan Kurzrock. I am the uh, co-founder and chief grain officer of a company called Regrain. And what Regrain does is we're working uh, on creating a new ingredient stream out of uh, food that is created every time beer is brewed, which I can tell you a lot more about. But the gist of it is that um, you know, every time these breweries are making the beverage of beer, which we all love so much, they're also creating this super high protein, high fiber food that currently isn't, you know, it hasn't really been used for, for human consumption. And we, we invented a way to turn it into, into a flour that can be turned into a whole variety of, of different food applications, um, starting with a line of snack bars, which is what we've commercialized today. Right. So that's how I met you. Remember way back when? I think it was Expo West, wasn't it? I think it was Expo it was West. Like it was Expo East, actually. It was East, uh, okay, yeah, where you exactly. pitched. Yeah, I was, yeah, on, yeah. I, was on the pitch, I was on the pitch circuit. And you're like, right, oh, right. Oh, I oh, get yeah. it. I get it. Yeah, the pitch circuit. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk more about the pitch circuit. But um, but I, I enjoy judging a lot because it gives me a chance to see you know, see what people are doing around the country and see um, entrepreneurs. And I like coaching people on pitching too. And my people tend to do really well, which is of course fun because I actually am a sort of competitive person. <laughs> so anyway, it's it's fun. yeah, yeah. yeah you, were, you, were a tough, you were a tough cookie. I, mean, I get it. Yeah. Year. But, but <laughs> I, I, but I think that Actually, you know, we'll talk more about this, but I think that having pitch events where judges ask hard questions like that are is a great educational opportunity for the people pitching, right? It's meant because it it if those questions are good, they're really getting at key business model issues that the company ought to be thinking about, right? So yeah, anyway, that's, that's kind of my that's all about. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's my that's my philosophy about that. Um but anyway, so so you and I met that way, and I was intrigued by your company and um, impressed by what you're trying to do, in part because, um, you know, having done a whey company, I was reclaiming what used to be a, viewed as a waste product and made something highly nutritious and saleable out of it, which is, in fact, what you're doing with beer. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks for being a pioneer in the space. It's, uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's the analog I, I draw all the time that we're trying to do for beer, you know, what, what way did for the cheese industry. Um, right. That uh, it just makes, just like way, it makes so much sense to be feeding people. Um, right. Nutrition. So in that vein, what, what I always find interesting about these things is why, 
like, what have we been doing with this stuff in the past, right? And so when I, when I, in the world of way, when I went back um, and went to Europe, because we've been making cheese forever, and, you know, Europeans have kind of preserved those traditions, I, I discovered with way that they used to do like way retreats up in the, up in the Alpine regions, you would go on a way retreat. It was a curative thing. And you'd go on this retreat. You'd have to spend months because way raw way is 95% water. So you'd have to drink like gallons and gallons of way to get the, the health impact that you can get with powder these days. But there was this curative, this knowledge of a curative thing with way that went way back. Um, so if we were way back with the grains that you are coming, that come out of, um, the process of making beer, like what did we used to do with them? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And like, um, cheese, and we've been making beer as a civilization, pretty much for actually as long as civilization's been around. You know, the first yeah, first, pretty much. Uh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Scholars think it was, uh, well, the bakers always think it was it was bread that, that made uh, you know humans stop being nomadic, but the brewers all say I'll say it was beer. You know, yeah, right, goes. right, right. Someone, someone, someone left. You know, their their harvest out and uh, it rained, and you know they they came back and you know it kind of smelled funky, and they tried it and they had a good time and you know, right, they tried to figure right. out how to do that again. All right, um, exactly. And, you know, beer, yeah, beer, beer is pretty heavy to carry around, so you know, mm-hmm. all one place. And, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. So. So yeah, we've we've had this uh, this material for a long time, and for the listeners out there, what we're talking about here is um, you know today it's barley, so most beer is barley based, and mm-hmm. um, barley is is turned into malt, and the way you do that is you, you essentially are, you're sprouting, and then roasting um, the barley, and then to make beer, you're soaking that barley in water, um, and so. Mm-hmm. The first step of the beer making process is very similar to making oatmeal. You're taking hot water and you're mixing it with, um, you know, with these these dry uh, cracked grains. Maybe they put them through a mill so that they so that they're you know, a little easier to um, absorb the the liquid. And also, uh, there's this process that happens where the um, I don't get too much into it, but essentially what they're doing is they're extracting the sugars from the grains, mm-hmm. kind of rinse that through, and you've got this liquid that then ferments and becomes beer. And then you're you're left with this this wet um, soaked grains and mm-hmm. historically there um, is you know evidence of, of, of it being consumed by, by people but there's so much of it that is created every time beer is is, is made and it's mm. very um, unstable uh, you know it, it actually spoils fairly quickly if, if nothing's done with it and so the you know historical paradigm has been to feed that uses this animal feed Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got, there's a pretty rich history of, you know, some bakeries doing some specialty, you know, loaves with it, but for the most part, and we're talking, even today, um, 85, 90% of the, it's called, brewers call it spent grain, um, mm-hmm. you know, the spent grain that's generated is, is, is used for, um, for animal feed and some innovations in how to process it, you know, were really required to make this, you know, feasible to, to do. Um, so. I, I wish that there was you know, go back and you got these brewers grain, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. People, exactly. would, just, people would just would just eat, eat the stuff on the top of a mountain for. Right. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, turn into superheroes. You know, maybe that's the right. origin story for some. Right. Some cartoon will come out with at some point, but um, right. yeah, no. Mostly, it's been it's been pretty. It's been historically very undervalued and, and mm-hmm. overlooked, even today. Most of these most breweries will, um, you know, where they can, they'll, they'll have a relationship, you know, with the with the farmer directly, where they'll just come, um, 
you know, we'll give it to them for free if they'll come pick it up because the brewers mm-hmm. need it out. Um, you know, it's changed, especially in the last 10 years, as a lot of breweries are opening up in cities. Right. Uh, it's, a lot more di- it's a lot more difficult, of course, to, to have that consistent, um, mm-hmm. you know, relationship happen. And, you know, from a kind of economic perspective, it's, you know, even if the if the brewery is selling it to the um, farmer, it's it's for very, essentially no economic value. We're talking about like a few hundred bucks a ton, so it's um, very much handled like a like a waste stream. Even though this this soaked grain has had its sugars extracted from it, so it's, what's left is all the fiber and the protein. So it's um, you know when when you when we process it into a flour, and then it's you look at the nutrition compared to that of a kind of just, I guess, conventional grain, um, it, it's, I mean, it, it's super impressive. It's a super grain. It's not a super right. grain. And so what, we're right. trying, what we've set out to do is really kind of shift the understanding of this uh, from, you know, going from, from spent to super by creating mm-hmm. a, a company that puts this, this, this upcycled grain as, as the hero. Uh, right. Also happens, it also happens to be very tasty and also happens to be very versatile. Right, and so it just makes it makes so much sense to right. close close the loop in this way. So I I think I mean correct me if I'm wrong, but there are, there are technical challenges with this um, because I don't think it that I mean if you don't treat it the right way, the flavor is pretty um, I don't know sour in a lot of cases i'm going to use that word it's probably not exactly right yeah. but I mean, yeah yeah not not even just the flavor i mean so the important thing to understand here is this when it comes out of the brewery it's 85 percent, 90 percent water right it, okay it, it, it is truly soaking right I mean, it's been sitting in hot water for uh, an hour typically right right so because and there's also some sugar activity, and so what happens is once the uh, you know comes out of the brewery very hot, but once that temperature starts to come down, um, it essentially it, it, it starts to it spoil. Um, and right. spoils not only does the, is the flavor affected, but it also um, can have some you know microbial activity that um, isn't safe, you know, potentially. Mm-hmm. And so. Mm-hmm. It needs to be. It needs to be processed very quickly, and it also be cut, It also needs to be processed uh, efficiently for mm-hmm. business model. Right so what we did actually, and I'm not a I'm not a scientist or an engineer. I was just an underage home brewer in college. Mm-hmm, right. On this idea, and started selling loaves of bread to friends so that I could you know make make beer for free. Uh, All right. I, perfect. Uh, figure out how to scale processing this, and so we actually uh, and my partner Jordan and I we discovered that the USDA um, has a division up here. I mean, there's there's several leads across the country called the Agricultural Research Service, the ARA. Yeah, yeah. And so we actually partnered with scientists uh, at and engineers at the USDA and uh, directly with them collaborated upon a a novel processing solution that we found. Nice. So we we actually um, did have to end up having to invent a new way to to handle this. Yeah, yeah, because you got to stop that that process, right? The the I mean, stop the process of of the um, grain degrading, basically. I'm assuming, right, or do something because otherwise the flavors off and nutritionally it would be off too. Yeah, we got to do something to actually unlock the the value, and that's that's what's really exciting about this is this this breakthrough that we made with the USDA makes it possible yeah. for the first time to actually introduce this as a as a new ingredient into um, 
you know, from a business sense, you know, we talk about oh, introducing into the supply chains of other other food companies, but really what it comes down to is um, helping, you know, creating products and also helping other companies create products that not only taste great and are good for them, but are also, you know, good for the planet because mm-hmm. it's directly reducing waste and and feeding people. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's you know, kind of that ultimate win-win, and that's what really excites us about about Regrade. All right, cool. So, um, so you partner with them, you develop this process, and you you have a patent pending, or has it been awarded, or where are you in that process? Yeah, it is. It is pending. Yeah, perfect. Great. So, um, so now, well, so, so now you have something that um, um, you have this patent pending process um, for um, making grains out that are palatable and usable out of this and have some incredible, it sounds like, nutritional attributes to them. So then you started doing, as you said, in the, you, in the beginning, you started making bars, right? That was like the first thing you thought of doing, or did you just end up there for other reasons? Yeah, so we there's kind of, there's kind of two buckets of you know thinking about you know regrained as a, as yeah. a, one is that everything we we're just talking about with the creation of that ingredient and the other is where we're making these ready to eat snacks that are you know it, it, the goal is to build the market right and get people uh, right aware of the of this and also excited about it and so we didn't I wish I could say you know looking back that we had done this massive you know market survey and yeah bars, yeah yeah you know the, the most exciting category you know right right 600 million it's like, you know the, the world needs another snack bar right right uh, you know, at, the, at the top at the time we had we were making bread originally okay bread, if you were made it is very labor intensive and the shelf life is very short and we were operating at that time. We weren't even a cottage foods business when we made our first bar. We were operating out of a college apartment, and um, it felt like a breakthrough with the bar. We ate a lot of bars. Like, oh, let's try and make, yeah, a, right. try and make a bar. I had a, re- I had a recipe for loose granola from my now mother-in-law. And <laughs> we kind of, con- con- you know, iterated on that and made these bars. They're basically cookies that were you know, rectangular, and we put them in the black bags and, and sold them to friends. And you know, mm-hmm. at, at the time, it, it was. Uh, you know, it felt like a breakthrough that we could make dozens of them, you know, even a hundred, a hundred of them in a day. Right. Now, like, you know, looking back on that, it's hilarious because we make right. such an order right. magnitude. Yeah, yeah, right, right. More than that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so we've, we've changed the recipe a few times since then, but we really, we started making bars really just as a, um, a product that we could make by hand and mm-hmm. scale uh, mm-hmm. to the point where we felt like we'd proven our concept. And mm-hmm. then it, it's, to date, you know, it's the, it's the revenue generator for the business. And so sure. we, we continue to produce bars, although we have now recipes on, um, honestly, dozens of other applications that we could bring to market at any at any moment or um, mm-hmm. do so, you know, actually in partnership with other, other food companies and sure. create a new category under Yeah, yeah. Like, no, I think that's really smart. I think you and I have talked about this before that – um, any any food manufacturer that is manufacturing things themselves um, for whatever reason and, you know, having something proprietary like you have is a reason, um, um, faces this challenge of trying to get sufficient economies of scale in their manufacturing, which usually means buying 
way more capacity in terms of processing than they really need. And then how are you going to fill that? So people end up doing private label. It's just a very smart business decision, um, business model decision to be doing both. So um, kudos, kudos. And you've got an even better thing going here because you have this proprietary um product essentially and process um so okay so now you're making bars um and you went to market and um how 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 long were you in the market before i saw you pitch you know it's a trick i wish there, I, I always give a long answer to this because we technically sold our first bar officially when as we, when we ran was a incorporated business in 2013 yeah. Okay. But we weren't really, even when we met, we weren't really in market. We truly launched this product in January of 2018 at the at the Winter Fancy Food Show. We had okay. earlier versions that were in the market, and those were, um, you know, our, because we were so young and uh, yeah, you're dr- just really know kind of, know what we were doing. We were trying to yep. like, do revenue generating learning. Right. Right. So we got a product out there in a very limited way. Um, uh, pretty pretty much right away, um, and, and changed it a few times based on based on feedback. So we kind of we kind of try to take the classic tech model of of um, you know getting those those feedback loops early on on a yep. viable product, and just getting yep. that product out there and, and see what people think of it. Um, mm-hmm. As we knew, and it, it, originally you never had, you never had the original ones there. They they really tasted like. Uh, Tasted like a good idea. Yeah. For, um, <laughs> yeah. We're on so our way to excited. somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. People, people were excited about it. We learned uh, eventually um, that they were really excited about the potential, um, not necessarily right. where, where the product was at. Now we have a truly great, great product, but it, it took us a while to get there. And mm-hmm. we launched that one in, in, uh, in January, and now we have it in um hundreds of retailers and you know all over all over the internet as well so it's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah we're off to the races at, at this point we've got a new new product line on the way so we're right to announce that well that you know to to get that kind of market reception to a bar in the a category that is as cluttered as bars is and then in a retail environment where consumers have so many options it's hard to get their attention uh, you're clearly on to something, right? What I love about this is it's a bigger idea. I tell people, I think it's time for bigger ideas. Got to think big, right? So you're not just making a bar, you're creating a whole new category. Exactly. And, you know, even with that, it is still an enormous challenge to get, because once we get people's attention, they get it, you know, they're they're excited and and then they, you know, they try our product, maybe they try the product first, they really like it and they learn about it, but to get that trial um, in such it's a saturated hard. category, I mean, bars in a, bars in itself, it's almost like saying um, like music is a is a category, you know? Because, right. But there's all these like there's all these there's all these subcategories in in, mm-hmm. in bars, and you've got your protein bars, you've got uh, you know your gluten free bars, you've got your sports bars, you know, and there's like so many different ones. Mm-hmm. And so you know what 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 it's been definitely. Um, you know, a learning process to try and figure out, you know, what the best way to communicate what, you know, what we're right. doing is. The, right. And well, and it, yeah. it has, it relates to formulation too, right? I mean, with Tara's way, I was clear that I was doing 
um, a, a, a product for the health and wellness consumer, which meant there was not going to be any sugar in it. And there wasn't going to be, you know what I mean? There was some really clear things given the subset of the market we were targeting. Um, so did you go through some decision-making like that about your products? Yeah. I mean, so there's, we, we try to, we see our, our, our actual, everything we do as a company, but it, you know, so it's manifest in the products as, um, in particular is an opportunity to, to be intentional about every decision. So mm-hmm. even back when we were in, even back when we were in college making these for, you know, unofficially for friends, we, we were taught, we were having the discussions and, and making decisions around things like, where do we want to source our, we, our almonds, you know, mm-hmm. go to Costco and buy three pound bags of almonds or, might there be an opportunity to, to partner directly with a farm mm-hmm. or with packaging? Mm-hmm. You know, we were making, we were making like, you know, hundred bars a week at the time. And we right. had a discussion about, about whether or not we should move to a, a compostable wrapper. And we decided mm-hmm. very early on that we, as uh, it was really non-negotiable for us that if we're going to reduce waste, we're going to do it on all fronts. And we started mm-hmm. using a, a compost, compostable package, um, you know, very early on. And, with our nutrition, you know, we didn't want to make a candy bar. So what's the minimum amount of sugar that we could use to still make our, mm-hmm. our product functional, you know, still like hold together and be right. that you could eat, but not, um, not be a candy bar. And a lot of other bars on the market are essentially candy bars when you look at how much sugar they have. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that is something that, you know, you can never be too small to be thinking intentionally. That's what I'm yeah, no, absolutely. And the irony is that you, your product reception will be better, you know, when you are intentional. And by, and what I encourage people to think about is like, who is the consumer? You know, like everybody doesn't care about, a lot of people don't care whether they eat too much sugar or not, but that's not your target market. It's funny. Every time we talk, I'm like, oh, it's so much like us. Um, with Tara's way, with our packaging, you know, we're in cardboard containers. And at the time people were like, you know, well, the cool thing in all new ways, they're going into plastic containers and like, nope, not right for my consumer because I too was doing this, you know, I'm in this waste recovery kind of a cat and health and wellness category. Of course, we're going to do cardboard, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. It's so funny. It's so funny. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So cool. You, you had this like, like product development path that, that, um, grew out of the sort of core values of the company and is consistent with the, with that. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate about what you're doing is that you're not just another bar company. You're, you're, um, you have this technical solution that you're bringing to market. And that means that you have a whole bunch of supply chain issues. So I I bring this up because with Way, right, it's one thing to have the idea. It's another thing to have relationships with enough small cheese plants who made goat cheese or who made organic cheese in order to fill up a plant and make a business out of it. So that supply chain development part of my business was a big deal. And I bet that is true for you. Yeah, big time. It's so important. I mean, a lot of people look at what we do and they think, oh, you know, great. Like you can, uh, you can get these breweries to pay you to take away, you know, this, this brand, you know, they got some, and it's like, right. I get it. It's just one example. Of so yeah, sure. We could think about doing it in that way, but really what, what we're setting out to do is create shared value. We want to, mm-hmm. we want to, uh, we want our business models and, um, 
you know, benefit the brewery, we want it to benefit the consumer, we want it to benefit the planet, we want it to benefit our communities, we want it to benefit our bottom line as well. Coming up with a, a model that works for that is certainly part of, um, you know, what we can it's not a traditional, you know, IT that you can Yeah, of course. Or, or something like that, but it's, it's, it's so core to, um, to our business and it is complicated, right? I mean, we've got more than... 30 breweries just in the city of San Francisco, right? Right. In different beers. Um, even a single brewery might go through a million pounds of grain in a year. Right. Uh, and so we're talking about, you know. And it's not just one grain, right? It's not just yeah, one grain. It, yeah, or it, it is. The mix coming. Even if, even if it is mostly barley, maybe it's different kinds of, you know, they're, they're roasted to different, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darknesses. If you're starting to look at the macro beers, you know things like um, like Budweiser, um, you know, Coors, all all of that. That that beer is uh, actually not all barley. It's more than half usually of adjuncts like rice and corn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a lot to a lot to think through. And um, you know, we hope to take what we've learned here in, in, in San Francisco and mm-hmm. the everything from the supply chain development to the processing to the actual, you know, applications of the recipe itself, um, you know, all the way to bring it into market and actually do that all over the mm-hmm. world where mm-hmm. um, we make beer pretty much in every part of this uh, yeah. spaceship Earth that we all live on. And so there's an opportunity to um, to deploy regraineries uh, all over. Or, right, you know, right. We, we I love it. I, yeah, I love it. A regrainery. I love it. So, um, <laughs> so I know that you, are you still building out your facility or are you pretty much done? Where are you in that process? Yeah, so we're building out a, uh, a scaled out version of our, our facility now yeah. in Berkeley, in Berkeley, California, and that will be operational in a matter of, of months. Which nice, is super exciting. That's going to really put our, uh, you know, put our, our patenting process to the test. You know, not going to mm-hmm. kind of commercial scale. Um, and from there, we've got um, yeah plans to to expand um, to other other geographies. Are you just processing the grain there? Or are you going to make bars there too? No, yeah. So what we'll be doing is we'll be shifting to because we're not we're not going to be world experts at how to produce bars as right a number right. Of, of contract manufacturers that that they can as, you know do that better than we can as well as any other um, like we're coming out with a savory snack uh, mm-hmm. that's going to that that'll actually start at a, at a contract manufacturer. So the the core mm-hmm. activity. Will be the um, the supply chain through to the um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the processing of the regrain. We call it Super Grain Plus, or you know, this, this flour, um, and then we'll have our, our you know, world headquarters there, and it'll be a bit of a demonstration facility too. So a place where sure. people come out and see see what we do and taste some of the different uh, taste the potential um, mm-hmm. that the regrain offers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, do you have a, a set of um, uh, breweries now who you take product from routinely? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's we do. And we're, it's, it's, it's hard to, and I know you, you, you get it, Derek, because you did this with Way, but it's, it's right. hard for the average person to really wrap their head around just how much 
output of, of these byproducts there are from just a single manufacturer. Yeah, yeah. In the, case of, in the case of beer, we're talking about a pound for every six-pack, approximately. I mean, wow, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's like Imperial IPA, yeah. it'll be twice, uh-huh. you know, but it's like, yeah. on average, that's, that's what we're talking about. And it's, uh, it's pretty mind-blowing to actually see what that looks like, um, even at a, what's considered a small brewery. You know, they, they fill... Um, like dumpster sized containers multiple in a single day. And, yeah. You know, these are breweries that aren't even distributed um, all the way throughout California. Right. Right. Entire mm-hmm. US. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. It is crazy. It is crazy. And, um, and you said that it was how what percent water? About, 80, about 85% on, yeah. on average. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, this is so, yeah. Cause in the way business it's 95% water. So, you know, to to end up with, yeah, I totally get it. So there's this little (laughs) bit of product that goes out the, you know, the back end of your plant and you, you have to have like truckloads of stuff coming in the front. Right. And, and the, and the plants themselves are generating all this. And if you don't take it, this is another business model thing about businesses like this. If you don't take it, they can't dump it. Right. Um, at least in the case of way. And so you're like signing up when you sign up with a plant, this is not a relationship people take lightly. You know what I mean? It is, you are now strategically embedded in their business and you're going to run 24 seven because they run 24 seven, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's absolutely critical that we become a reliable, that we are a reliable. Yeah them and and candidly you know we haven't this is because of how much grain they're they're producing right now we're we're not a solution for the breweries that we, yep we, i get we it something that they're excited we're something they're excited to support because they want to mm-hmm. see they see the potential and they want to see us become uh that and you know we have mm-hmm. this first regranary up and running but yeah um that's really our, our opportunity to, to truly say hey you know, we're ready to take uh, we're, we're ready to take this on. And yeah. No, I was just going to say that I think what, what I really like about your work with the bar is that in a lot of ag, your your business in a way reminds me of a lot of ag businesses that are doing high value added things like maybe um, in, in Wisconsin, an example would be um, people planting aronia berries, which are, you know, super high antioxidant, incredibly prolific. There's all kinds of good things that they can do because they're, they're kind of native here. So people planted all these and then they didn't really have a processing facility and nobody, no, consumers don't know what aronia is. So there's no developed market for it. So the the result of that is that whole effort is kind of stagnating, even though from if you're interested in regenerative agriculture, it's pretty interesting, right? Um, your yeah, yeah. You, you needed the bar in order to prove to people that this stuff was palatable and to create consumer awareness, you know, so that consumers will go to the big boys and say, hey, why aren't you using, you know, regrain? stuff exactly and it was it was something that was just intuitive to us you know we figured okay we didn't know what this was until we, right. we learned about it um and no one is gonna know you know what the, especially you know at least aronia berry has the word berry in it you know this, right uh this, this 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 stuff is known in the industry as spent grain you know this no, right. grain because it's spent it's spent its ability to make 
beer. Like beer. And we like to say it's like the grain, you know, the, uh, the, the artist formerly known as, as Brewer Spent Grain, you know, because it's, it's not spent at all. It's just you can't make more beer with it. It's, uh, right. it's just getting started as a food ingredient. So there's this, this real authentic opportunity here to, um, <laughs> to, to, to reintroduce um, this mm-hmm. as as the super grain that it, that it is, because no one wants to eat something that's called spent grain. That sounds that sounds gross, but it couldn't right. be farther from being accurate about uh, an accurate descriptor of what mm-hmm. it actually is. And so we said, you know, when we when we looked at that and we thought, okay, well, there's so much of this grain. You know, clearly, the the scaled out uh, you know version of our business model is to go B to B with this, um, but first. We need to we need people to to know what it is and to be mm-hmm. demanding it. So when you know when they walk into you know any aisle of the grocery store and see you know a regrained pasta or a regrained cereal or a regrained tortilla or bread, they know that that is a product that's not only going to taste great, but that is also you know is going to be a great um, source of, of nutrition for them and good for the planet. Mm-hmm. That all you know had to, had had to start as we thought with us creating our own ready-to-eat products, mm-hmm. even though that's non-traditional as a business model. You know, it was really, you get it, but it was, it was very confusing for some people. Well, uh, and I'm sure it was confusing. And, and I think I love, um, I love what you're doing, you know, in part because it's so similar to what I did, but it, because I think that um, to really, regenerative agriculture is a great place where this needs to happen in order to, uh, in order to really change the underlying, you know, environmental impact of things um, at the farm gate you know, on the farm level or processing level, you have to um, you have to get the consumer involved, and you do have to fix this intermediary stuff like grass-fed meat. We got lots of people who could do grass-fed meat, except that we don't have slaughterhouses that can. Um, keep the beans separate, right? My steer is mm-hmm. grass-fed, George's isn't. And by the time they come out of the slaughterhouse, you don't even know the difference between George in a big scale, large scale slaughter facility, yeah. you know? So just having some, Absolutely. So some, just having some identity thing associated with the animal is not enough. You have to supply, you have to address all this supply chain stuff and investors and consumers and average people do not understand that. Yeah. And if you look at it as a, you know, as a market failure, which, you know, food waste, you know, is, and then it is. Yeah. Kind of food, food system solutions they are you know they're they're market failures yep uh, the, it's not even the kind of the tradition a lot of the traditional um you know market failure types like you know, information asymmetry or something like that like truly what right. we have is is missing markets mm-hmm. uh, so what we need to do is actually create the market in the first place yes um, and you know, by doing that, starting with with demand, you know, it's a lot easier to have supply catch up to demand than it is um, to have a bunch of supply and then go go, go try and create the the, the demand uh, from there. And so, by starting with, um, you know, with the, with the consumer side and, and building the demand and then you know scaling um, the supply side incrementally, we think that we can create a really robust market that we can eventually uh, service, you know, by, by licensing our technology and right. on, on that side and, um, you know, working with these other food companies and creating uh, co-branded products, uh, you know, on, on the other side and get to mm-hmm. the point where um, 
there's a really, you know, powerful, robust market um, that is, you know, it just becomes common, common sense that this is what you do with. Uh, right. With, right. That's created every time beer is brewed. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting about that is, is that laying out that vision, um, the typical entrepreneur, if they laid out a vision like that, that when they're talking to me about stuff, I'd be like, oh my God, this is not, this is not possible. This person is not going to be able to do that. They're taking on too much, all of that. And I suspect that you got, you get that feedback from investor types, but I do believe that First of all, I've watched you and, and see your your entrepreneurial capacity, which is pretty impressive. Um, but I also right. believe that, you know, in order to think big and really change things, we have to we have to be supportive of folks like you who have the capacity and you're young enough because honestly, that vision that you just articulated is a 20 year vision. It's not a three year thing and flip it, you know. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, it has to come from people who are young enough and you have to be financed by people who are willing to hang in there long enough with you to build this all out. Yeah, absolutely. Having the right partners along the way. And, it, you know, even beyond having the, the finance, um, having the advisors, you know, behind us, like when we started this business, was, I mean, we, we couldn't even, uh, we couldn't even buy a beer. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. With this, you know, when, you were making your own beer for a reason, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. So you know, being uh, having finding the people that can, um, you know, I've, I've seen different parts of this movie before and can help us, you know, chart our path has been, um, you know, truly critical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't, I, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I, just, I just have a vision of, 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 of how I think this should work. And uh, yeah, it's been exciting. Take, take yeah. a step towards making that reality. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of the, um, what's interesting to me about really um, capable entrepreneurs is, is I'll, most of them are willing to say what you just said, which is, I don't know what the hell I'm doing and I need help and I go find the best help because nobody really knows how to do any of this, um, honestly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and it's a much better predictor of success when you're willing to do that. You know, that's that's probably one of the biggest predict- predictors of success for an entrepreneur, I think. Um, yeah, anyway, that's, 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 re- that's reassuring to those. It is. Yeah, no. And you keep, keep looking for help and you keep moving forward and keep trying to solve problems in a different way. How did you fund way back in the beginning? We were just doing your bars and then we'll, we'll keep talking as yeah. you scale. So we, we didn't really early on. Okay. So we, we absolutely, you know, like you, like you laid out, um, you know, we're going to need, you know, big money over time to do this, especially because it require you know our, our business model requires that we build out processing capacity. Um, but our philosophy around taking money was that we wanted to wait as long as possible to do it, so we didn't give up too much of our company. Now, of course, there's a trade-off between that dynamic and also making sure that you're capitalized well enough to actually right grow. to make it. Yep. Um, is, and when we did take money, making sure that we were taking it from people that were really bought into our long-term vision and weren't, you know, looking for us to build a company that, you know, we could flip in, you know, three years, five years. Right. And so what we what we did in the beginning was just put down 
it wasn't a lot of our money, just a few hundred dollars to get some ingredients and kitchen supplies. And then we just started mm-hmm. selling product right away. Mm-hmm. So we came mm-hmm. to market with a product that was not necessarily perfect. Um, but it was, we, what we could do is we could, we weren't paying ourselves anything at the time, of course, but we were, mm-hmm. we would sell and make sure that we had enough margin that we could not only buy another round of ingredients, but, you know, also have enough, enough to, um, you know, have to cover some basic operating costs. Like maybe if we signed up for, when we signed up for our first farmer's market, make sure that we had a, we could buy a table. Right, and right. Buy a pop-up tent, you know. Right. So early on, it was very scrappy and it was just like get out there and sell product and, um, you know, get it to the point where it was uh, worthy of, of, of greater investment. Mm-hmm. So we did it like that for a few years. Um, in 2015, we did our first crowdfunding, which was uh, rewards-based crowdfunding, so kind of the traditional Kickstarter model. Kickstarter, that we're yeah. Model. And we did it on a, a food platform called BarnRaiser, and we raised about $30,000 there, which helped us cover a packaging run and some other mm-hmm. things. Um, and then in 20, late 2016, I felt the bit, we felt the business was ready to take on some actual investment and, and raised money from um, friends and family and angel investors. Uh, and that, that got us, uh, comes that next stage. And then we um, did equity based crowdfunding actually. So was that. Okay. Became, um, so before you go into the, yeah. So, yeah. The, so before we go into the equity-based crowdfunding, because that's just like, to me, is a whole nother conversation. Um, yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. So where was the business at when you, when you started that first investor, friends and family sort of thing? Were you st- selling in stores already? Like what was going yeah, on? Yeah, very. So we were in that phase where we brought an earlier version of the product to market. We were, in, yeah. we weren't really trying to grow, but we were proving our concept. Um, yeah. And so we, I don't know, I mean, our revenue was probably like a hundred grand or something. Yeah. It's not a lot. Right. right. Um, and. But it wasn't, knew, it wasn't $5,000 at a farmer's market. It was more than that. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. It wasn't, yeah, it was, it was, you know, some, you know, it, it was enough to show that there was, that there was a there, there, you know, that there yep. was something that, that if it was given the resources could maybe become something else. Mm-hmm. And it also had gotten more, honestly, you know, equal, of equal importance is that we were at the point where we knew that if we were going to take it to that next level, we couldn't keep doing this as recreational entrepreneurs. You know, we had to, uh, we had to make that leap to being full time because yeah. we, we, we needed, we, we the, the business needed us to do that. And in order to have that time, we, we needed to be able to, to live. Um, and so, you know, modestly, but still we needed to be able to yeah, live. Yeah, of so course. Our business, our business was at the point where we knew that it could take off if we were to put, you know, some more into it, mm-hmm. uh, both money and, and time. And so that was, you know, it's not an, and uh, you talked to um, a lot of entrepreneurs, I know, Tara, and, uh, you know, I think most would probably tell you it's not an exact science. You know, there's a lot of kind of, it's, it's kind of a feeling. It's you. Yeah. Right. No, you know that you just it just feels like now is the time to to, to do this, and so. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and I think yeah, a narrative that's compelling. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think you're. It's a psychological thing too. Like you, everybody's tolerance for risk is a bit different, and you know, they're they're 
when they get to the place where they say, okay, I'm going to dig in and do this big time, you know, it's, it's different for lots of people, but, um, but anyway, it's, it's helpful, I think for our listeners to understand sort of the state of the business at the time you did that though. So. Yeah. And look for, I would look for qualitative, uh, yeah. triggers if you will. So for us, it was, you know, we had like our sale, it's not like we were at a million in sales or something like that, but we, no. um, but we did have, we didn't have our patent filed yet at the time, but we were like well on our way to, you know, we mm-hmm. knew that, you know, we could confidentially talk to investors about our, our technology and that there was, there was something there. We were winning, started winning pitch, you know, things like pitch competitions. Yep. We were getting a lot of, we were getting a lot of press. Our social media was, was going really well. And, you know, there was just a lot of signs of life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you, when we could then take those and weave them into this, this, uh, narrative of, of where we could go from here, um, that, that was, um, that was how we, we thought about it. Right, right, right. Okay. So you did your first raise and then, um, things progressed more and then it became, I'm just assuming then it became incredibly obvious that you needed more money. Yeah, and actually, you know, one of the things that I um, kind of like a misconception that I, I like to try and dispel when I'm having these conversations is that it's like we didn't actually stop raising money <laughs> at all. It's not like we raised money and then we're like, okay, we're done for a little while. We actually, right? Um, the way that we did it, and it, it's I guess more non-traditional, or at least not the way that people seem to talk about raising money. Um, we just had an open-ended raise where we uh, I kept conversations with investors alive, and as we needed, you know, more more money, I we'd, we'd close some of them, and mm-hmm. um, so we're, I was kind of continually raising money for for a few years, bit by bit. Yeah, um, which is I know not the most traditional approach, and then it it did hit a point where okay, we know that we we've got our technology with the patent pending. We need to like commercialize it. Um, we need more a lot more money than we than we did at first, and so uh, equity crowdfunding seemed like something that could be a really interesting part of that capital right. stack for a lot of. I don't know if you want to get into that yet, but there's a lot of reasons why we decided to to do that. It ended up going a lot better than we thought it would, which is really that's a nice outcome. kind of problem. Have I'm not there yet. <laughs> I just want to go back to. Yeah continuously raising money thing because I think part of the reason people talk about these in rounds is it's that comes from um comes from tech um you know where where you're doing series a series b right and there's the pre-series a stuff it also comes from securities law that you want it when you do an offering you got to keep your terms consistent right and then the bigger the money, the more likely it is that all these people who are going to come in with this money will require this all to come in on the same day. So there's some yeah. reasons why you end up forced into that model of, um, you know, raise money, stop raising money thing. And that in yeah, and out and thing. Th- yeah. Absolutely. And I think our, you know, our A round will be more, more like that, but for the, the C yeah. round, um, you know, this was, and of course we worked closely with our lawyers to make sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It was buttoned down and, um, the terms didn't change much, you know, throughout, Mm -hmm. throughout the raise. And we, we made, um, you know, we, we promised our, our first investors that if anything did change that we would honor that, um, Mm -hmm. their favor, um, you know, no matter what. Um, right. 
And as long as that stuff is written yeah. up in their the um in your agreements, um you're you're fine. So usually. So okay, so cool. So now you're at a point and I'm assuming this is sort of when you realize you needed to have a plant that you had to raise a lot more money. Yeah, I mean it was something that we we saw coming, right? Uh, yeah. And we um yeah, that, that that was what we knew was going to be the biggest use of capital for sure. Mm-hmm. So, so you saw that coming and, um, I mean, what, one of the things I find really interesting is working with the brewery type brewers, um, or cheese people or distillers or anybody who's doing this kind of, um, food or booze processing. It's not, it doesn't take long to ha- need $2 million. And the number doesn't change very much from category to category. It's really interesting to me. I mean, unless you can use a bunch, you know, you're lucky enough to scrounge a bunch of used equipment or something, but it's it's remarkably similar. So um, just for the benefit of our listeners, this is not a small amount of money usually. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it gets to the point where, you know, $10,000 here, $50,000 there, so, you know, isn't going to... Um, Suddenly you're like, yeah, what, $50,000 tank? I'm not surprised, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. Okay, so, um, so, so why did you choose to do this um, crowdfunded equity offering instead of like just, I mean, in a place like San Francisco, you could probably talk to one or two people and get all the money you needed. So why go through the uh, whole crowdfunding thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Uh, a lot of it for us comes down to, to mission. Uh, mm-hmm. So we, I mean, we're, we're certified B Corp. Um, you know, we support 1% of the planet. Like every, everything that we do is, is, is focused on that, um, you know, triple bottom line, so to speak. And when, when mm-hmm. equity crowdfunding first became a thing, um, it was talked about, it just intuitively made so much sense to us and it really aligned with our, our values, the concept of being able to say, hey, this this is a business that is for the planet. It's for the people that, you know, for all people that, that, that live on it. And, you know, if we can get funding from, um, you know, from the people, not from just, you know, the elite, where we can make this something that's really accessible, where we can, you know, we can democratize access to um, owning our, our mission and our success with us. So, you know, why would we not want to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's, of course, a lot of pr- practical things that, 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 that do make equity, equity crowdfunding not, not to be taken super lightly. You know, it was not a... It's actually really hard. Effect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was really uncertain, right? We didn't know mm-hmm. what the outcome would would be, but we knew that trying it was something that, uh, you know, we weren't going to rely on it for our whole rounds. So we had you know, a backup plan if it didn't go well, but... If it went well, which it ended up doing, it not only would give us, the, you know, some of the capital that, that, that we would need as a part of the stack, but it would also um, be a, you know, great marketing exercise and another mm-hmm. opportunity to be out there as 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 thought leaders and pioneers and doing something, mm-hmm. um, you know, being innovative and in, in everything that we do with our business. And from a governance perspective, equity crowdfunding is really interesting because. You, I mean, it depends on how you you structure your your terms, but with the um, you know what you can do is make it so that you actually, as founders, 
have proxy over the votes, uh, right. the voting rights associated with people that you raise through equity crowdfunding. Um, yeah. So, you know, as you get, as we get diluted later on, um, you know, that, that's a class of, of, um, of voting rights that you can, um, you know, retain mm-hmm. control over. And as we think right. about growing our business, that's really important to us. You know, I know that to grow, I can't grow Regrand as a, um, you know, just this, this business that Jordan and I are going to own 100, you know, 100% of, 90% of, 80% of, you know, over time, we'd need too much capital for that to be a reality. Mm-hmm. But what we really care about we think we can, you know, make everyone a lot of a lot of money, you know, throughout mm-hmm. that. We're not too worried about the financial outcomes. What we want to make sure is that from a governance perspective that we retain mm-hmm. um, control over staying on mission and, you know, remaining the, the values based um, company that, that we that we set out to to create. And so mm-hmm. pursuing pursuing equity crowdfunding to us felt like a um, a strategy to um, you know, kind of mitigate that that, that, right. that risk over time as well. So, kind of, it, it, it was uh, it, it did a lot of things for us. And just when we thought about doing it, you know, and of course we were intimidated by how much work it was going to take, and also the uncertainty of, of the outcome of putting putting ourselves out there in that way, disclosing all the things that we had to disclose to do it. Right. Um, but it just it just it just felt right. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're super glad that we did. We had some, some great partners that that you know that helped us uh, do it and. So talk to potential. Yeah. So talk to me about your the partners who helped you do it, because yeah, just talk to me about like what what did they help you with? Yeah. So I mean, a few things. One was that we have you know one of our one of our investors um, is a group that was very I don't don't know the exact way to describe their relationship with them, but they part of the one of their companies has a very close relationship with, with Indiegogo and they, mm-hmm. um, micro ventures is a part of Indiegogo, which is where we raised. And so they had a lot of experience. They're kind of experts, I guess, in, 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 in crowdfunding, um, in equity crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, well, no, I guess no one can really say they're an expert in equity crowdfunding. It's so new. Right. So, right. Uh, yeah. That's the, that's the idea. Yeah. So they really encourage us to think about doing this. Um, and uh, also provided us with a, you know a, a pretty great speaking opportunity at the beginning of the campaign. So I really mm-hmm. encourage. Uh, so when we did our campaign, we did it not only it was live for both Winter Fancy Food Show and Expo West, where we had a lot of touch points with people, and then we had this um, this, this speaking opportunity uh, through Indiegogo. Mm-hmm. Um, as well, and so uh, you know, having as many opportunities to like meet new people while these campaigns mm-hmm. live is really huge, and so they they helped us with that too. Um, and then it was kind of an all hands on deck thing too internally. You know, it was me and my client co-founder Jordan, and we've got a very, another very close advisor who was um, uh, hugely helpful in this as well. So it was really a you know, kind of take the village mm-hmm. effort, and you know, our lawyers too. I mean, it's. It's a because you have to get to, the word to get out, right? I mean, yeah. And what what was your average investment? The size of the average. The, av- the average. The average is about a thousand dollars, but the minimum okay. was hundred dollars. The minimum was what? Hundred was was one hundred dollars. Okay. We had someone, and the maximum is one hundred and seven thousand um, dollars. Mm-hmm. We had a. We did have a hundred thousand dollar investor. We had a fifty thousand dollar investor. We had some. You know, tens and twenties, but the you know the average was 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 one thousand. 
Mm-hmm. It's so interesting because um, Willie Street Co-op here, you know, co-op retail co-ops because, you know, they're member owned. They can raise money under SEC law. They've been able to do this for a long time, right? Raise money from the people who shop in the store. And our Willie Street Co-op is pretty big here. And um, when they did their first offering to their members to open a new store on the West Side, um, they, I think they needed to raise like, I don't know, million dollars or something like that. And it seemed to them like that would be so much money. And, and it actually happened very quickly. And, um, and the average investment was bigger than they thought it would be. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's super interesting. And we didn't even really know what to expect. Uh, right. To be honest, we, we figured, okay, if we could raise something like $250,000 through equity crowdfunding, that would be mm-hmm. meaningful. Right. Uh, uh, how much did you end up raising? Almost $700,000. Wow. Congratulations. And, Thanks. you know, this is where all the work on this bar pays off, right? Because you had this consumer product and you've been out marketing it and telling your story for a long time. Exactly. Yeah. Now we have, you know, literally a small army of, of investors right now can help us champion that as as well mhm mhm yeah that's fantastic so you did that are are you do using some debt financing to build out your plant too or did that mean you didn't need to do any of that yeah so we're still working on some 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 debt financing vehicles and um we don't have any like major ones you know in mm-hmm. play at the moment and then we have a, you know, on top of the equity crowdfunding, we also have, um, we're not ready to, to announce it yet, but we have a big strategic partner that's coming in. Mm-hmm. With, uh, nice. Which is a, another, you know, when you're talking about building a great source of money. Yes. yes. But, and they can be paid and they can be patient if they're the right partner. Yeah. They can be, um, you know, patient and also a, um, not just a you know, patient source of capital, but also, um, you know, the upside of, of business development opportunities. Of course. Tr- tr- truly a strategic. Yeah. 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 No, strategics are awesome. So, um, so yeah, that's fantastic. So that's kind of your, your trajectory. So if I, um, so it sounds like you're going to have a plant up and running in a couple of months, a bigger plant, right? Uh, it's still, would yeah. you still call it kind of a pilot scale though? I mean, it's, or is it, is it really a pilot process? Commercials. It's a, it's, it's, it's commercial scale. I mean, we're going to have okay. the output is, is of, a, of a commercial scale. Um, cool. It's our pilot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. Plant. Yeah. It's so funny in food because everything in the mainstream food world is so big that it's hard to even find the right words to describe small processing, you know, cause to, to, yeah. Yeah, it's so weird, right? Um, yeah, yeah you'd be like, oh, this is, you know, lab scale. I think, well, you know, we're a food company. <laughs> For us, it isn't. Yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and and the grain, so do you have other markets developing or develop for the grain that's going to come out other than your bars? Yes, yeah. So we've got another line of our own products that we will be announcing um, at the trade shows this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got development happening with other food brands, you know, some multinational both CPG and, and food service companies um, mm-hmm. that 
our uh, you know, kind of this chicken or the egg situation with our processing. Uh, yeah, of course. We have the volume to support it. You know, we can kind of we can turn those on. And um, within a few years, we should, most of our most of our revenue should be coming from those relationships. But um, it's it's really hard to hard to predict because our you know our our own branded ready to eat products are are really great and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe, I don't know, who knows, maybe we'll split the business or something. There's a lot of different ways that we can that we can do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, you know, you and your original investors, it's and certainly the crowdfunding people, it sounds like you right now have a patient group who's going to be in this for a while. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, if, if they're not, um, they can't say that I didn't warn them. You know, we were very, very clear in our um, – and our offering documents and all the conversations that we had, that this was something that, you know, we're not just trying to build a, a food. This isn't just a food brand where there's mm-hmm. a playbook, you know, there's a playbook for that of how to, you know, how many you raise this much money, you, right, right. you know, yeah. you, you, you grow, you grow at the top line by this, you know, by this amount and, you know, you, you sell for, you know, well, now the multiple just keeps, seemingly keeps increasing, <laughs> you know, seemingly right. Yeah. More. Yeah. Which is, you know, not, not what we're trying to do here. I mean, we're a hundred percent focused on generating um, significant and, you know, of course, competitive returns for, for mm-hmm. our investors. You know, this is a for-profit business model, but we, we've got a, we've got a longer view on this mm-hmm. and, um, you know, that was something that we were perhaps, um, um, we, we definitely weren't quiet about it when we were, when we were raising mm-hmm. money. We were very upfront and, uh, mm-hmm. and loud about our, our philosophy on the kind of company that we're, we're looking to grow and the kind of investors that we feel um, mm-hmm. are a fit for that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, we have covered a tremendous amount of ground, as you have in the development of your business. Um, have we missed anything? Uh I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I, I just appreciate you, you know, digging in with me in this, in this way and being as helpful as you have um, since we've, you know, met a, a few years yeah. ago. You know, yeah. I always, um, I'm always, I always love talking, meeting other entrepreneurs as well. You know, I've had, uh, you know, there's, it's impossible to cover everything in a, um, in, in this amount of time and I have a lot of people that I that I call and um, I always encourage um, founders of companies to not just find you know advisors that are you know very seasoned but also um, you know people uh, that are maybe just a year or two ahead of them in the business and kind of see get that that, that shorter term outlook too so we'd love to hear yeah. from anyone listening out there about your your businesses and see if there's ways that I can help. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great to hear. I do think that that giving back thing is something that it's also a characteristic of the people I think who are great entrepreneurs because they're kind of doing that all along. Um, there, there's something about the learning that comes from that. You know, you're never you always get more back than you give, if that makes sense. So yeah, totally. I'm always learning from from other. Yeah, you're learning all the time, and you never. Yeah. Uh, you got to be kind of agnostic as to where that where that comes from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, part of part of what is so, and what I'm what I'm interested about as I think about your story is, 
um, how replicable that could be around the country. Not, not you know, regrain per se, but as a product, but as a strategy for, you know, a, a mission-based company who has this real clear focus on that and um, is intentional about how they design their capital stack and how they grow the business. Um, the fail fast forward thing that you you do um, is a is a real great learning for lots of people, and they could do that anywhere. It's you are in an, a different money raising world, though. You know, I, I mean, around here, I um, um, I worked with Mobcraft, um, which is a crowdsource um, beer. Actually, you would you got to meet Henry. You and Henry are yeah. are are yeah are real similar. Um, and he wow. did an equity crowdfund. He was the first. I think he was the first one to use our state law to do it in our state. And he raised money. I would have thought he would have been able to raise more. So he, you know, it, and it's just a question of the investor behavior around here you know around around here mm -hmm. we're very very conservative folks right so they want their term sheet and they want rights and they want all this you know seat on the board and yeah. all this stuff right so you are really fortunate to be in an environment where there's a there's sort of a capital culture that is developing that is allowing for this kind of approach it's interesting. Yeah, to I me. think so, and I think it's that plus also now with the platform-based equity crowdfunding. Yeah, it becomes it becomes global, right? So right, you know, our I actually haven't done. I should I'd be really interested to, do, to actually just like plot where our investors are. And where it would be really, from, but it was all, but but it was all over the world. You know, is uh, that interesting too? So yeah, it would be really interesting to me um, if you did that to just see. Um, because different parts of our own country, our philosophy about business and things are very different. You know, my, my, in Wisconsin, we have the highest number of privately held companies apparently in the whole country. Um, you know, when I sold my business, my dad called me and was furious with me because he thought that I should have been passing the business on to my son. Yeah. You know, it's That's a whole, yeah, it's just a whole different Thing. But on the other hand, Willie Street Co-op was able to raise a bunch of money pretty fast. So it's an interesting thing about, about money. Um, and yeah, yeah, as it relates to this sort of longer term. Because I think we need more of this bigger thinking, longer business models in food like you are doing are going to take a long time to come to fruition big you know and be yeah. i mean it's already come to fruition but you know what i mean to achieve your bigger no, vision totally. and, our, and our planet needs it you know our planet uh, desperately needs it we got we got to take a long-term view short-term thinking got us to uh you know to where we are uh today with you know dwindling resources and yeah know climate chaos and all kinds of crazy stuff happening. If we want to fix this thing, we got to, we got to take, we got to take a longer, a longer view of it and certainly beyond, you know, quarter to quarter earnings. Well, yeah, but you know, even beyond three to five years, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, exactly. in the, you know, you'll have something valuable after five years, but nothing compared to what it will be 20 years from now, you know, when we're all eating regrained, you know, it becomes the norm, right? Yeah, exactly. Can't wait for that. Yeah, well, it could happen. Could happen. Yeah, we're on our way.
Yeah. Well, hey, it's been awesome to chat with you. Um, I've learned a lot about what's been happening recently, and um, I look forward to talking to you some more in the future. Yeah, you too, Tara. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. Thank you.